rise for their majesties of Royally Obsessed, the podcast for all things royals. Stand by! Three cheers for Her Majesty the Queen! Hi, welcome back to Royally Obsessed. I'm Lisa Ryan. I'm Caitlin Menza. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I was ready. I'm ready. Keep going. Uh, it's time for your weekly update on the royal news you need to know. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Royally Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Royally Obsessed. Please subscribe, leave us a five-star review, and you can email us at infoatgallerypodcast.com with any and all questions about the royals. Um, this week, we have an incredibly special episode, primarily because we're on vacation. Yeah, I mean, that was the original need and inspiration, but we came up with something really special, I think. Yes, we are so excited to be joined by Sinead Burke. She's an educator, an advocate, and you might know her as a cover star of the British Vogue September issue. So it's pretty amazing. (laughs) So we're talking with her about the September issue. Obviously, we in New York have had a very hard time getting our hands on this issue. Yeah, we still don't have one as of recording. Yeah, so luckily we were able to buy a digital one, so we went through the entire issue. So it's like we've been yes. holding this very, very heavy 700-page I still want to hold it, though. I know, I want it as well. So some people in our uh, Facebook group said that they found it at this one um, newsstand in Soho, and I called, and they were sold out, and... Other people in the Facebook group called and they were sold out. But then the other day I was walking by and like, I'm just going to go check. So I went in and I was like, hi, are you still sold out of the British Vogue? And they just kind of laughed and said, yeah. I mean, that's really incredible, though. I just have to say. Yeah, it was a knowing laugh. Like they looked at me like, oh, another one of you. Not in a mean way, but yeah. just kind of like everyone's like the fifth ob- person today who's asked me this. Like everyone's obsessed. And, you know, as two people who work in media and sometimes print media, I'm really impressed that everyone is obsessed with the print issue. I'm so glad people are buying magazines. Yes. You're paying my paychecks. You're keeping, you're <laughs> keeping me in a home. So thank you so much for doing that. Yes. And oh, royal refreshment this week. And now it's time for the weekly royal cocktail. Um, it's watery stuff. Lime Perrier and... I have a lime uh, LaCroix. No, a lemon LaCroix. Um, while I'm... You know, again, we're on vacation this week. So while you're listening to this, I hope to be holding a Mai Tai in real time. But um, right now I have a LaCroix. Yeah, I'm sure I'll be drinking Pinot Grigio with probably some <laughs> Perrier in some ice cubes. Like I'm Ramona Singer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Probably. But until then, we're just drinking water and seltzer. Uh, so we have a listener email. Caitlin, would you do the honors? Yeah. So this one is from Amanda, and it's so perfectly appropriate to our British Vogue-themed episode. Hi, ladies. I am a longtime listener of the pod, and I've been completely royally obsessed since I watched the royal wedding of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. I feel like that day in 2011 really was a gateway drug for a lot of our listeners. Yeah, it like defined this generation of royally obsessed. Absolutely, which I appreciate. Last week, my boyfriend and I went to London on vacation. The trip ended up being completely centered around the royals here here as we visited buckingham windsor kensington and the crown jewels on our way back from windsor we stopped at a convenience store so i could buy a copy of vogue again solid move (laughs) as i was in line to pay there was a middle-aged woman from india in line behind me also buying vogue she looked at me and pointed at the mirror part of the front cover and said that's supposed to be us i nodded and thought about how much influence megan and the rest of the royal family has here were two females from different worlds different parts of the world who spoke two completely different languages but both knew exactly what mirror part of the front cover represented both of us felt inspired from it i loved reading the magazine and will keep it as a great souvenir from my trip thanks for a great podcast 
Amanda. Again, this just goes to show we have to fly to London to get this issue. Seriously. Which is fine. I feel like once more copies come to New York, we're never going to get it. It's going to be sold out everywhere. I know. It's really like maybe I need to call Barnes & Noble and put one on hold or something. Can you put a magazine copy on hold? I don't even know. We'll never know. We'll never we'll know. Never know. I, I'm starting to lose faith that I will own this thing, honestly. Mm-hmm. But I'll try. Um, and then we have This Week in Royal History. And now, This Week in Royal History. So the past few weeks, we've talked a bit about Princess Diana's death, because obviously the end of summer, it's hard to get through the end of summer without thinking about her. For sure. Because it was like one of the defining events of our childhood. Yeah, you know, absolutely. So, people's. so on September 6th, 1997, an estimated 2.5 billion people around the globe tuned in to watch her funeral. Um, yeah. And I, I remember it. Do you remember watching it? I, I do. Sometimes it's like hard to remember, hard to realize what you actually experienced and what you just have watched the footage so much of. That's you know what I mean? So I remember distinctly also the movie, of course, the the movie. Um, what, what The Queen. The Queen. With Helen I Mirren. just feel like every title, every movie about Queen Elizabeth, Queen Victoria, young Victoria, they all have a title like The Queen. And I'm like... The Queen, oh, the Crown. Yeah, The Queen, the Crown. The movie The Queen is about the week after Princess Diana's death and how they figure out what to do. So, of course, I remember from the film and I also remember from watching on YouTube images of the boys walking behind the funeral procession and how horrific that must have been for them. Um, so I remember that. Um, what's really remarkable about the the funeral is how many hundreds of thousands of people lined the streets of London to watch the procession. Um and then at what Westminster Abbey is where the politicians and celebrities and the royalty were gathered for it. And that's where um, Elton John, of course, performed Candle in the Wind, um, which, if you don't know, a bit of the history of that song was, of course, written about um, Marilyn, Marilyn Monroe. Monroe's passing. And then he changed the lyrics just a little bit to be about Diana, which um amazing. And then um, Diana's brother, Lord Spencer, spoke at the funeral and, you know, really gave uh, a tough speech about how you know, the media caused his sister's death and he called her the most hunted person of the modern age. Um, Yikes. Yikes. Yeah, really, really incredible stuff. I I really encourage everybody to watch that movie. Um, Helen Mirren's obviously amazing. It's written by the same guy who directs The Crown. Um, I saw this. I don't think this was speculation so much as people just being like, maybe. But some people were like, oh, should she be uh, Queen Elizabeth after Olivia Coleman because you know right. how they age up with the right. actors. So I'm pulling for that. I don't know where I saw it. It could have just been some random headline, a clickbait I mean, thing. But Helen Mirren should be in everything. So I that's mean, fine. She should. Helen, oh God, I want something with Helen Mirren and Olivia Coleman. The Dreams. A sitcom, a Netflix show. Seriously. Would be fine with all of that. Please. Um, so we want to talk, uh, you know, we've discussed the British Vogue issue a bunch, obviously, but now we have a whole themed episode. So we want to dig into some of the stuff that we haven't discussed so far. Um, before this, we discussed sort of a run through of what was in the issue and the cover. and Michelle Obama. Yeah. Jane Goodall. Her, uh, you know, Megan's essay herself where she ex- explained her process of why she wanted to do this. Um, some of the charities she's worked with. So we've discussed that in previous weeks, but there was some stuff, you know, more and more of the pieces have been put online or, of course, like we we said we bought the well Lisa bought and kindly <laughs> shared with me uh, from the app from the British Vogue app to see the issue but we just there's just so much material so there's we wanted to discuss a little bit of it before we start chatting with Sinead um, so we thought maybe we could discuss the Jamila Jamil piece yes so 
I assume everybody listening knows who she is, but if they don't, she started out as a TV presenter and then she um, kind of rose to like international stardom or at least more stardom uh, (laughs) when she was on American stardom on the NBC sitcom The Good Place, which is amazing. So I recommend anybody uh, watch it. But but it sends you down an existential spiral. I mean, what doesn't send us down an existential spiral? (laughs) So so what's another one, you know? But then she started... um, an activism campaign called I Way, which was, you know, directed at all of the ridiculous standards of, around beauty that we're seeing in the media. And so it's all about like, you know, for instance, if you're going to say I weigh, it's not like I weigh such and such pounds. I weigh all these attributes that actually make me who I am. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And then Megan, when um, the Sussex Royal account started highlighting different organizations each month, one month they chose I Weigh, and then later we found out, oh, she's also on the cover of the September issue of the Brit- of British Vogue. Yeah, really, if you look back at, like, including if you look at Sinead's account um, from a couple months ago, she had posted a photo, for example, of when she met Megan, and it just goes to show that there were so many threads that led to this final group of women who were showcased in the issue. Um, you could see all the ways that Megan was meeting people and starting to figure out, you know, this bigger project that she would work with all of them for. It's just kind of incredible to trace those relationships and how they began. Um, but yes, so she had already, the Sussexes had already showcased Jamila's work before. Her essay is really incredible. Um, she It starts with just general global physical requirements for women in 2019. Be thinner, have longer legs, have a small waist, have a big pert bottom, but with absolutely no stretch marks on it. You know, it's just this long, long list, like three paragraphs of all the things that are required of women. And then she just says, oh, I'm so exhausted and utterly fed up with all the extra homework that society has assigned me to do with my body. And she just discusses, like, think of all the things you would do if you didn't you know, devote so much energy to thinking about what you eat and how you look. Um, And she also discusses that, you know, she had suffered with anorexia in the past. And so this is incredibly personal for her. And as an actress, she's in in the public eye and people are judging what she looks like all the time. Um, I recommend following Jamila on Twitter and Instagram because she's, it's not just, you know, a sort of a pet campaign for her. Like this is obviously so close to her heart and she posts about it all the time. Like I saw just a couple of weeks ago, she posted from an image from The Good Place's fall season. And in the the campaign, she's wearing a like a strapless dress and she circled part of the image and she said, I just want to point out that my back fat is hanging over the back of the dress. And I asked them not to Photoshop it out because this is like, you know, I'm allowed to do that now. And mm-hmm. with a little bit of power, this is what I'm trying to do is like when you wear a strapless dress, often your back pokes out over the top of it. And that's what happens to real women. So mm-hmm. deal with it. You know, yeah, she loved that. She's really remarkable. And then another piece that came out online after we recorded the past episode or the last episode that we had about British Vogue, um, Edward Enninful, the editor in chief of British Vogue, wrote a piece about why the Duchess of Sussex is the ultimate force for change. And it's pretty remarkable. And I just wanted to quote from this one paragraph he had. He wrote, on a personal note, I can't overstate how much it meant to me to see HRH, the Duke of Sussex, marry this brilliant biracial American powerhouse. I simply never imagined that in my lifetime, someone of my color would or could enter the highest echelons of our royal family. On her ro- wedding day, as she rode to St. George's Chapel at Windsor with her mother, Doria, by her side to marry the man of her dreams, it was clear that the world was witnessing something incredibly powerful. It went beyond diversity, beyond inclusivity, 
into humanity. It was pure love. Yeah, oh, that's amazing. It's beautiful. I, I see why he's a professional writer. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty good about it. Um, yeah, that piece is incredible. I just, as I discussed in a previous episode, I love just hearing the intricacies of like how this exactly came about and what their email exchanges were like. And it's just really fun. Um, Another piece that sort of sort of shows the behind the scenes, which I love, uh, was from Salma Hayek. It was uh, written through a piece by Ellie Pithers, is the writer, and it just describes on finding her voice in her 50s. So, of course, Salma Hayek's been famous for a very long time. I really love the underrated rom-com Fool's Rush In with Matthew Perry from the 90s. I've been watching Friends lately, so wow, this falls <laughs> into my life. So she actually, she talks about something that I hadn't heard from her before, which was the... Um, not the backlash, but the reaction she got when she spoke out about Harvey Weinstein two years ago this fall. Um, she wrote a really powerful essay for the New York Times called Harvey Weinstein is My Monster Too, which is um, she was she won a, a portion of the Pulitzer Prize because she wrote that essay um, because the New York Times was awarded for their Weinstein work. Um, and she said that, you know, she was prepared for something terrible, but she got a weirder reaction, which was that people started to get in touch with her her team, her management team, and they were like, oh, who ghost wrote that for her? Because they were really good. And she was like, what do you mean who ghost wrote it? I wrote it. It was my experience. And she was so annoyed by that because she felt really undermined. And she said, that's what people do. They undermine me. And she said, I can write. And she's actually dyslexic. So being able to write something for the New York Times, she felt was a real accomplishment for her, as it would be for anybody. Um and she said, this was a big deal for me, so why would anyone take it from me? Um, and she just talked about how she's only becoming more powerful with time, and she's 52 now. And she said that, I think the best time of my life is now. You have to understand I'm 52. Even 20 years ago, it was very different for women. And she said how the writer asks her, how do you define success? And she says, success has to do with this question. If they take everything away from you, can you look at yourself in the mirror and be proud of your journey? Um, it sounds like she can be, which is pretty amazing. Um, also, as 32-year-olds that Lisa and I are, <laughs> are talking about how she's 52 now and reflecting back on 20 years ago when she was 32 and how much has changed. I hope there's a lot of positive change in the next 20 years for us as well. Me too. Yeah. So here's that was hoping. Just, here's hoping. And just there's so much in this issue. It's so powerful. I, there's always new stuff that we're finding. I was trying to think about why this issue was so impactful to me because you can be a fan of Meghan Markle, sure, but this it doesn't mean you're going to like read an entire magazine issue and be like, wow, this is amazing. And the reason why it's so amazing to me is because every single issue that is um, highlighted in this issue of the magazine is something that I care about. Yeah. You know, I not trying to make myself sound great, but like, you know, we work, we both work in women's media. Mm -hmm. So we do so much work around equality, around inclusivity, around, you know, standing up, yeah. fighting out, fighting against various ho harmful things in the world. And so it's just really amazing to see an entire magazine issue that's devoted to those things. Yeah. And Jamila sort of breaks that fourth wall as well in her piece because she's like, it's very strange to be complaining about the requirements around women's bodies when I'm writing for Vogue, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not as if Vogue has been absent from, you know, controlling the narrative of what men, women's bodies look like. Um, but this issue in particular is so, is so special because it's a it's so many firsts, right? It's mm -hmm. um, the first trans model on the cover of a Vogue, any Vogue around the world. Um, the first little person to be on the cover of any Vogue um, as Sinead, um, we're going to discuss with Sinead shortly. And it's just, this is really special stuff. It would have been a special issue even if Meghan Markle weren't involved, mm -hmm. but it probably, it definitely wouldn't have happened if Meghan Markle weren't involved. 
So now we are so excited and so honored to be joined by Sinead Burke. She is an activist. She is a writer. She's an educator. She's an influencer. She's a broadcaster. She had a viral TED Talk called Why Design Should Include Everyone. And she was on the cover of Business of Fashion in May 2018. And she's now on the cover of British Vogue. And she has a new podcast coming out in late October. She's very busy. She's very busy. <laughs> so we are so excited um, to be joined now by Sinead calling in from Paris. No big deal. Fancy. We're so excited to have you on, Sinead, because you were recently on the cover of British Vogue. But before we get into that, and believe us, we have a lot of questions <laughs> about that, um, we'd love to chat a bit about your background and your path to activism, because we are such admirers of your work. Yes. Well, that is so very kind of you. I am an open book and will tell you anything you like to know. Go on. What is it you want to know? <laughs> We'd love to know about your background um, starting as a blogger. So you started blogging about fashion, especially the lack of inclusivity in the industry. So how did your interest first develop in fashion and what gaps were you seeing at that time? Sure. I've always been interested in two specific areas. They have been language and fashion, because both are tools that I employ as a little person to try to translate who I am to the world and to really contradict any stereotypes they might have, because I stand at 105 and a half centimeters tall. And if I use the word ameliorate in a sentence the first time we meet, you may guess that I'm currently in Paris studying French, but you also will probably understand that I'm not a child. And if I come to you wearing... I don't know, a cape twirling in a Burberry silk scarf from Ricardo Tisci's most recent collection, you'll probably have an understanding as to who <laughs> I am as well. But whilst those were two things that I wanted to interact with and use, it came at this very difficult intersection because I would go into a store and being a little person would find very few clothes that I could wear or access. And it really came to fruition for me when I went shopping with my sisters. I'm the eldest of five children and my siblings are all average height and I would go shopping with my younger sisters and they had access to more clothes than I did. And I remember just feeling this sense of of a lack of justice and crying, you know, this isn't fair. I have more money and more interest and I want this more than you do. And yet due to something I didn't consent to and can't control, my disability, I have less access than you do because nobody's ever thought of me. And I am tenacious as an individual, uh, which is a kind way of saying irritating beyond measure. And I <laughs> wanted to know more. So I began reading the Wall Street Journal, Business of Fashion, WWD, the New York Times, the Financial Times. I wanted to understand how the system of the fashion industry worked because I thought if I could understand that, I could interact with it in a way and perhaps shape it and change it. And that was the dream of an 18-year-old teenager who had this kind of ridiculous sense of ambition and still in many ways do. So I started blogging about it because it was this incredible tool where my height didn't matter, though it framed every single conversation, but because it was invisible, people would interact with me through empathy rather than through this image of what it was that I looked like. And it changed everything. And 10 years later... Here we are talking to you about being on the cover of the September issue of British Vogue, which is an absurd sentence to be able to say <laughs> in any sort of reality. And yet I can. So it's been this extraordinary journey to somebody who's felt very much like an outsider within this industry to being included and now with a huge responsibility to not only revel in that inclusion, but make sure that that, that door 
continues to be opened for so many others who continue to feel out on the margins of the fashion industry and being included in society overall. Yes, can you tell us a bit about the Inclusive Fashion and Design Collective and founding it and what your goals were with that organization? Sure. It was founded with an extraordinary American advocate called Liz Jackson. And really, it was the very beginning of both of our advocacy journeys in relation to how we could view design and fashion and really looking at it as a tool for inclusion. For me, in terms of fashion, it is this pairing and partnership of form and function that really, I suppose, enamors me to what could be possible. I'm currently in Paris, as I said, and I've been talking a lot about accessibility whilst I've been here learning French. And someone said, you know, if you want to make Paris accessible, you need to start at the schools and at the state buildings because that's where it can be implemented most quickly and in a most utilitarian way. And my argument is actually the opposite. And it's the reason why I've deliberately inserted myself into the fashion world. We need to get the most beautiful and the most archaic and the most architecturally extraordinary buildings in Paris to embrace accessibility first. Because if we bring accessibility along with beauty, anything is possible. But if we continue to look at accessibility as this clunky steel, cold metal ramp that goes onto the front of a building and depreciates its aesthetic and economic value, we'll never move forward. So this idea with the Inclusive Fashion and Design Collective was to pair both of those things from a design and fashion perspective. It's no longer fully in existence, but Liz is still doing extraordinary work in the US and I'm trying to chip away too. We were reading through all of your work for uh, British Vogue, and we really loved the story of how you first met Edward Enifel, because we would have been too nervous to talk to him, but you weren't. (laughs) And so um, can you share the story of how you met him and how you became a contributing editor for British Vogue? Sure. The story of how I met Edward Enifel is somewhat of a long one, but please stick with me. I had given a (laughs) TED Talk in New York called Why Design Should Include Everyone. And from that, I spoke at an event um, called the Business of Fashion Voices Conference. And in between those two moments, a woman who was Irish, who I never knew, emailed me out of the blue and said, Hey, Sinead, my name is Alice. I work for Burberry. Quick question. Um, I saw that you're speaking at the Business of Fashion Voices Conference. Do you want to wear Burberry? We'd love to dress you. And it's one of those emails yeah, <laughs> that I kind of thought her next question would be, and what are your bank details? Just so we can, you know, check. But it wasn't. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely sincere. And from that moment began this initial relationship with Burberry that was really extraordinary. And I got to attend Christopher Bailey's last show as creative director and was dressed by the brand and was full of enthusiasm, excitement and a disgusting amount of nerves. And the seat beside <laughs> me remained empty. And as the doors began to close, somebody ran in and sat down. And I turned to my right and it was Edward Enenful. And I text my best friend and I said, Edward Enenful is sitting beside me with a profanity (laughs) in the middle there that I won't use for the decency of this podcast. And I kind of said, you know, what will I do? And he said, well, don't let him leave without saying hello. And I said, okay. And whilst I was trying to concentrate on the incredible designs that Christopher did for his last collection at Burberry. I was also trying to put together a monologue in my head that I could say at Edward. And the show (laughs) ended and I tugged on the sleeve of his jacket and he turned around surprised and also very confused and was like, hello? And I said, hi, my name is Sinead. It's lovely to meet you. I think what you're doing at British Vogue is so extraordinary. We've gone from having 144 consecutive covers in British Vogue where there hasn't been a single model of colour and you're changing that entirely. I do some work in disability and advocacy and maybe we could talk 
And I spoke at an even increasingly accelerated pace because I'm Irish <laughs> and difficult to understand at the best of times. And he was so kind. And he said, absolutely, I would love to learn more from you and I would love to hear more. And from that, it was trips back and forth from Dublin to London, heading to Vogue House and sitting with him and meeting with him and answering his questions and asking many of my own and seeing where the where the magazine could could go in terms of advocacy for disabled people because the fashion industry has been really making these issues invisible in a way that they shouldn't be. And it has been an extraordinary year of being a contributing editor of British Vogue, in some ways helping to bring those voices to the furore. And, you know, for the first time, being able to talk about experiences individual to me being a little person and also the kind of empathetic impact that, you know, so many people can relate to feeling on the outside. You don't have to be three foot five inches tall. But it's been very surreal to open up every issue of British Vogue. And when you look at the list of the various different staff and colleagues and departments and to see your name sat beside, I don't know, Naomi Campbell and Adwa Aboa and yeah. uh, Pat McGrath and Steve McQueen, it's like, oh, maybe that's not me. <laughs> maybe that's some other Sinead Burke. Uh, but it's a real treat. And you also wrote about your fateful meeting um, with Edward leading to your secret meeting with Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex. Can you tell us what it was like to meet with her and then tell us a bit about how this September issue came to be? Sure. The Duchess of Sussex and the Duke of Sussex were in Ireland last summer to attend a state visit. And it was all very secret. We were invited by the British Embassy in Ireland, and they said, you know, we're going to have members of, of the monarchy attend. We, we cannot tell you who it will be, but it should be a lovely evening where we're going to discuss all sorts of accomplished people in Irish society. And I kind of just said, lovely. It'll be a very nice evening. Who knows who sure. you'll get to meet. <laughs> and I wore an extraordinary dress by the Irish designer Richard Malone, who's based in London, to try to hint to that motif of, of the relationship between the two countries and the history there, particularly in terms of design. And it turned out it was the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. And we were put together in, in groups based on our own interests. And I was with some fashion designers. And when the Duchess of Sussex saw me, the first thing that she did was come down to my level so that we could speak at eye level. And it was done with such wow. respect and with such care that I was incredibly admiring of somebody who would step outside of their own comfort zone in such a public way to ensure that another person feels at ease. And um, we spoke about both being ambassadors to the charity One Young World. Um, the Duchess had spoken in Ireland in 2014, and I also spoke in that stage. And we spoke about the power of fashion to symbolize power, but also its responsibility to kind of impact upon culture and the world, be that the environment, be that intersectionality and inclusion, or be that just aesthetics and the power of good design. But we spoke about its enormous potential to translate different types of things, be it a public official and what a certain item and garment can say about you or being disabled and it translating a different kind of message to the world. And I really had no idea in that moment, in that conversation, what could become of it. But it was just these wonderful bundle of minutes to sit and talk with somebody with extreme influence, power and insight into how the world works. And I felt extraordinarily grateful that it happened. And it was surreal. And one of those evenings where you come home to my incredible family and they said what did you do today well actually do you know what I was at a 
tea party with the Duke and Duchess <laughs> of Sussex. And they were very lovely and very interested in me. And my parents and siblings greet me with curiosity. Really? You? Of all people? <laughs> you sure? Um, but it was lovely. And for then to be the cover of British Vogue and for it to be guest edited by Her Royal Highness. And I hadn't known initially that that's who had chosen me. And I was away on holiday with my family and I got an email from Vogue to say, you know, can you take a phone call at about 3 p.m. wherever you are? And I said, sure. And I was with my family at the time and they were kind of saying, oh, you know, can you not take a break from work? You're on your time off. You know, you should take a break. <laughs> Even if Vogue are calling, you should take a break. And I said, no, I'm going to answer this call. And Edward uh, called and I answered and he said, how are you doing? And I began to word vomit at him again. You can see that this is a pattern with me about my holiday and how much enthusiasm <laughs> I was having and how much exciting excitement things were happening with my time off. And he said, that's lovely, Sinead. He said, and by the way, you know, I need to introduce you to the guest editor of the September issue of British Vogue. And I said, oh, sure. Great. And he said, they're with me now on the line. And I said, lovely. Great. And they said, can I please introduce you to Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Sussex? And... My jaw hit the floor and my stomach was like, <laughs> right, so I have just been talking incessantly about myself and my wonderful family holiday. And a member of the royal family is sitting there listening to such nonsense. But she was extraordinarily kind again and just spoke with such generosity about the importance of my work. And I think particularly as women. We all often doubt ourselves. We doubt the quality of our work. We doubt the relevance of it. We doubt the importance of it. And to have somebody of such esteem say, you matter, your work matters, and you need to continue to do this because it continues to matter. I mean, it doesn't help just instill confidence in you, but in other people who are perhaps of a younger generation who can see themselves in you. So it was a brief but a really important conversation for me personally and professionally. And I kind of took a step back then and realized the enormity of what would or could happen once the cover uh, reached the public. And when I thought, hmm, I think I might be busy that night when it comes out on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon this brief interruption. This is Lisa, and I'm recording this on my vacation. Just a reminder that this show was recorded last week before Peter Lindbergh passed away. We thought Sinead's answer was so important, so we're keeping this question in. Now, back to your regularly scheduled podcast. So I wanted to ask a bit about the the shoot itself, uh, because you posted some amazing imagery on your Instagram, and of course it's available on the British Vogue accounts as well, but um, you had this photo shoot with Peter mm. Lindbergh, and you just look so glam, and you are owning that camera. So can you speak about, um, of course you do such amazing work, and we're going to discuss that um, in a moment, but just the glam of this moment. Uh, can you tell us what it was like to shoot with Peter and to be on that set and wear such amazing clothes? Peter just kept telling me that I had such an authentic face. And I'm not exactly sure what that translates as, but I have taken it as an <laughs> enormous compliment. And every time somebody yes. slightly offends me, I'm like, well, Peter Lindbergh said that I had a very authentic face. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, I was on set that day with incredible people, you know, Gemma Chan, um, Felicity Hayward, Adwa Boa, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And you kind of sit there and go, I'm not sure. And not that it's in any way a competition, but you're all going to be on the cover of the September issue of British Vogue. And you all want to look your best and the most proud and for it to be 
the most reflective version of yourself. So I think when I stood in front of his lens, I kind of thought, well, what's the worst that can happen? I look like an idiot. Well, he won't include those images. So just have fun because, I mean, I have kept a list of bold ambitions and goals that I've wanted to achieve since I was 18. And one of them, bizarrely, was to be on the cover of the September issue of, of Annie Vogue magazine, never thinking that it would happen. And I'm not sure if it will ever happen again for me. So to really revel in that moment and to take it for yourself and think there's no point in, in limiting what could be based on fear or nervousness or again coming back to the conversation with the duchess that you don't think you're good enough so just for one moment having the confidence in yourself to have the best time possible and to in five years time remember that moment with such joy so that's what I tried to do and I think it somewhat came across and then there was a lot of um kind of uh sassiness that I didn't expect to translate through the lens of the camera so I have no idea what I was doing in those moments but it was it was incredible and again you ha can't help but pinch yourself and think yeah that's that's what I did with my Monday how amazing yes so did you know from the beginning that your image would be part of the cover like did you know the the concept that it would be the sort of grid um from the beginning yeah of the shoot? I knew it would be a grid and I knew it would be one of kind of 15 women um but yeah and then we had heard hints as to who the others might be but I mean you look at that cover in your hand and you see the first ever trans person to be on the cover of any Vogue magazine the first little person to be on the cover of any Vogue magazine you have people like Jane Fonda and Salma Hayek you have the next generation of incredible advocates like Aduta Ketch and Adwa Aboa, you've Yara Shahidi. You have so many different points of view that I think it's a really powerful reflection of the time in which we're in, that so many people feel like they have the power to have a voice and to have a say and to not just speak for themselves, but to change the world around them for so many. And it's incredibly humbling to be one of the 15 women who's part of that. Yes, absolutely. And in British Vogue, you wrote about disability, harassment, and the steps that we all need to take to see change in our communities, especially the power of education. So can you please tell us a bit about what the, um, about the work you're doing around education and the ways in which we can all be forces of change? My background is in education. I'm a primary school or an elementary school teacher by trade. I love education. I think it's the catalyst for change that we need in so many circumstances, be it poverty, be it ignorance, be it transformation in the environment and sustainability. I think it's the one tool that will accelerate our progress in all of those things. And as I've said before, you know, I have dwarfism. And um, because of that, often people make assumptions about who I am, or what I can or can't do, or they treat me unkindly because they think I'm the butt of a joke or they assume that I am an object rather than a subject. And it can mm -hmm. be challenging to manage that sometimes. I have had people come up and take photographs of me in the street. I have had people call me names and be incredibly cruel. I've had people pick me up and throw me. I've had people jump over my head. Wow. And I'm very conscious while saying all of this, you know, this level of street harassment increases in graphic nature as you go through the intersectionalities. But 
for me, I think education is the tool to change all of that because most ignorance is not malicious. It's due to a lack of awareness and how other people can change that. The example I sometimes give is in the supermarket because that's when I'm often remembered and reminded most frequently that I'm a little person. So for example, I'll be in the aisle in the supermarket and a child will see me and immediately they'll say, look, there is a little woman. And the parent, so the adult who's with them, is clearly quite mortified and is trying to, in that immediate moment, manage the situation. And they will do a couple of things. They will firstly ignore the child and say, yes, that is a box of cornflakes, to which the child will say, no, no, that's not what I said. Look, there's a little woman. And then the adult will shush them or physically remove them from my presence. Because in Mm. that moment, the adult is worried about themselves because they see it as a reflection of their parenting and a reflection of themselves. How could my child do this? And in making it about themselves and in removing that child from the space in which I am in, they are telling that child unintentionally that I am not something to look at, nor am I something to talk to. They have objectified me in their attempt to be kind. And instead, I think we should just humanize these conversations and these situations. Because what would change all of that is if the adult said, yeah, that is a little woman. Why don't you say hello? And she'll say, hi, I'm Anne. And I'll say, hey, I'm Sinead. And then Anne is immediately bored because she thought that I spoke with an interesting tone of voice or accent (laughs) or was from some other planet within our galaxy and unfortunately not. And I think more and more when we talk about education, often our ignorance is born out of not knowing how other people live and exist. And those stories and those first person accounts not coming to us in a very authentic and transparent way. But if we humanize every interaction and conversation that we could possibly have and and exist in the root of empathy, I think we could make enormous change to how people feel because, you know, there's that extraordinary phrase, people never forget how you make them feel. And I think we need to keep that attached to us as often as possible. That's amazing. Wow. Amazing that you have the patience for that. I think it's my background in teaching. <laughs> Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, So aside from the amazing piece that you wrote, and we really encourage um, all of our listeners to look up your essay if they don't already have the issue in their hands. We know some people have had a hard time in the U.S. tracking it down. Including us. (laughs) Including us. (laughs) Everywhere Um, that has it sells out so quickly. Yeah, which is incredible. Um, But aside from the piece that you wrote for the issue, can you tell us um, about some other pieces from that magazine that really resonated with you? Jamila Jamil wrote this extraordinary piece about people's assumptions when they look at another's body and also the stories that have been told in the media about what beauty looks like and how we need to redefine that lens and ensure that as many people feel included as possible. And also the idea that, you know, we are already whole. And by that, I mean, you know, you are not half a person or a full person if you do or do not exist within society's definitions of what beauty is. And I think that's really powerful and I think it's really important that so many people, particularly young women, hear that. From my experience in schools, often young women in particular and even young men within the lens of toxic masculinity are comparing themselves to Hollywood or celebrity or each other based on what they've heard beautiful, cool, sophisticated, smart is. 
But all of those terms are subjective. And often we haven't translated that subjectivity to young people and they grow up wanting to be something or someone who they could never be and it's impossible, nor should they ever because you are whole and you are incredible and you are yourself just as you are. And I think that's a really powerful motif to tell people, particularly in the September issue of British Vogue. Absolutely. Wow. And we know that you have so many projects going on right now. And of course, like you just told us that you are in Paris at the moment. So you were just learning French and you had a (laughs) great program you were in. And so what's next for you? And can you tell us about this podcast that you have coming out, which we are very excited to listen to? Well, thank you. I am excited and slightly terrified, but mostly excited. (laughs) This October, I am beginning a podcast called As Me with Sinead. When we were spoken, when we were When we were speaking earlier about harassment and the power of education, for me, I am curious as a human being and I want to know how other people live and exist, the challenges they face, the opportunities that they've had, because I fundamentally believe that if we listen to other people, we can genuinely change the world. And over the past year, I have been traveling in all of the pockets of the different continents of the world to speak to extraordinary people about who they are as people. The first question I ask in every episode is, how do you describe yourself? And it has been enthralling to listen to activists and actresses and people from all walks of life talk about who they think they are versus the world and what the world thinks they are and who they should be. And I think if we can learn from different types of people, we can have the skills and the language that we need to make this world better. And my dream as idyllic as it sounds is for people to come away with an increased vocabulary because the question I hear most is you know Sinead what what do I call you what do I say what do I do that information isn't out there and as me with Sinead is hoping to be this platform to provide some of that vocabulary and some of that confidence to people to just go and have human conversations but it comes out this October and it will be available on Apple or wherever people get their podcasts and I am excited for it to exist because like my blog when I was 18 my disability frames every single conversation that I have with people but even from this podcast listening you may not be able to tell and that's a really powerful tool and weapon to wield So I'm excited and nervous and welcome all advice from your podcast aficionados there in New York. So please send it my way. Desperate for it. Oh, gosh. Oh, gosh. What do we know? Everything. You know everything. Everything. You are starting out with an Irish accent, which is so, I mean, maybe obviously we're biased, but it's so lovely to listen to. So we would just listen to your voice all day. I think having a lovely voice is a great place to you begin. You could read a phone book if they exist. Well, that's very kind. Exactly. But as an Irish person, I don't pronounce my T's very correctly. So I'm trying to get better at that oh, to appeal to an American audience <laughs> and to say that not that I'm a little person, but I'm a little person. It will take practice. Maybe person. by episode 25, I'll get there. <laughs> Well, Sinead, our last question is, can you tell us how you describe yourself? Yes, since that's the question, how you're going to begin, maybe that's how we could end. I describe myself as somebody who is curious and kind, at least tries to be as much as possible. I describe myself as a learner, an educator, and as somebody who will sit with you across in a coffee shop and after 10 minutes will probably know the most intimate details about your life. 
I have a face in which people <laughs> tell me things that they didn't think they would. And I'm a magnet to all things odd and curious. That's me. That is a wonderful description. <laughs> I need to work on my bio now. How do you describe <laughs> yourself? Beautiful. Well, well, let's I'm, see. Where I'm usually like, Lisa Ryan is a writer in New York City. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The most succinct. And you know, we're Americans. We always start with our, our occupations. But I like starting with curious and kind so much mm. more. Well, I'm glad really that we're lovely. all curious and kind. It unites us all. Yes. Well, I, you know, speaking with you, I hope that you come to New York and maybe we can sit across from you in a coffee shop because I don't want this I'm there conversation for fashion to end. Week, so let's organize it. Oh, wonderful. Yes. Wonderful. Perfect. Okay, amazing. Well, until then, thank you thank so, you. so much for being here. It's truly such an honor and we're excited to share your very important work with our well, listeners. Um, and again, once we all have copies of this issue to have on our nightstands, uh, we're so happy that your mission and your purpose are being shared worldwide. It's really incredible. Oh, no, well, thank Thank you. I am honored to be part of this episode and can't thank you enough for thinking of me. Thank, thank you, you so Enjoy much. the rest of your evening. Really, Bye. So lovely. Really wonderful. You Bye. too. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much again to Sinead. We are truly honored and we really look forward to making her become our friend when she's in New York. Yes, desperately, <laughs> aggressively, she is our new friend. Um, so before we join the Royal Pod, we have some highs and lows. It's time for the Royal Highs and Lows. I think this is both of our lows. Uh, the fact that we cannot get a copy of this British Vogue. What the F? Why is it so hard? <laughs> Why is it so hard? But it's going to make it that much more satisfying when we actually get it because we have been traveling around the city. Yeah. And, you know, I was traveling around L.A. We were both in California yeah. a few weeks ago trying to get it. Like, it's, it's just, just it's been a full month of this. That's the <laughs> issue. Um, but that's the that's the negative. Um, what's about your high? Uh, other than talking to Sinead and what she wrote, um, my eye is Jamila Jamil. I really like the work that she's doing. Yeah. So many eyes from that issue. I've mentioned the Michelle Obama piece in the past as one of my particular faves, but I'm just going to go with chatting with Sinead. I almost cried. I pulled it. I kept it together. I know. <laughs> but I almost cried. I thought that was incredibly moving. And I just, the energy and patience and generosity of activists is always amazing to me because the patience you have to have to be a full-time activist and deal with all these setbacks and people asking you dumb questions and I don't know that I would have that kind of strength so I'm always impressed by people who do wow she is truly remarkable um so you guys can drop us an email at info at gallerypodcast.com uh and we have a review Caitlin would you like to read it yes the the user is Fiona did um I love that name Fiona that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, this podcast is so entertaining and it's like having a conversation with a bunch of girlfriends about what we love, the Royals. If you're looking for a casual conversation style podcast that has some cool info and also news in the Royals, this is for you. That's nice. I like it. We appreciate that one. Um, you guys can follow the show on Instagram at Really Obsessed Podcast and join our Facebook group, Really Obsessed. Caitlin, where can we find you? You can find me at HeyKMenz, H-E-Y-K-M-E-N-Z on Twitter. You have and to Inst- spell it out slower because someone said you spelled it too fast. Did I really? Yes. That's hysterical. Um, you can follow me, Caitlin, on Twitter and Instagram at HeyKMenz, H-E-Y-K-M-E-N-Z, and read my writing at CaitlinMenza.com. And then you can follow me, Lisa, at Lisa Raya on Twitter and Instagram and read my writing at LisaRaya.com. And until next week, when we're back from vacation, God save the pod. God save the pod. <laughs>